May the peace of God rest upon this assembly this morning. And I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus who left us a legacy of peace. We can have peace in our hearts. Good to be here this morning and uh, gathered with the saints, people of God. I, uh, I hope you don't weary of hearing, hearing messages on prayer because it's again our subject this morning and I, I do plan to conclude with this message on the subject of prayer on the, with this message unless the Lord directs otherwise. So um, I'd like to look into that subject again this morning, maybe a few different aspects. and uh, But again, it... Uh, it's a subject that's close to my heart. It just uh, you take prayer from me. I uh, I don't have anything. I mean, I have the Word of God, but it's uh, I can't tell you how much prayer has meant to me in my own personal experience in my walk with God. So hope you can bear that in mind. Just a little bit of a uh, refresher or update. The this. This will actually be the fifth message on prayer. First message we had endeavored to to uh, look at what qualifying prayers are, or prayers that are acceptable to God. Second message taken from Matthew six, and we looked at the outline for our for prayer as given by the Lord there in what we call the Lord's prayer. Third message was message on persevering in prayer. Fourth message was the work of the Holy Spirit in prayer, praying in the Spirit. And so what I'd like to do as a concluding message this morning, I would like to think of the message somewhat like this. I'd like to look at the results of prayer, the power of prayer or the results of prayer or the, the, uh, the uh, research, the proof, the evidence that prayer works and what prayer does. I'd like to look at it in that uh, context, basically. We like to see results and evidence, don't we, of, of things, yeah. as we, we do. I uh, mentioned this morning about uh, James' epistle. James is, uh, he speaks more about the, the evidence, the evidence of the faith, the evidence of what, belie- what we believe and. Our life should bear the evidence and testify and and show what we believe. And uh, we uh, we're that way, or I am. I like to see the evidence. I like to see the proof. Someone promotes something. Someone, you know, is is uh, uh, promoting and and uh, trying to sell something or prove something. I eventually, if it's it's weighty enough, I'll tell them, well, I'd like to see a little bit of proof. I'd like to see some evidence. And um, just a couple of natural illustrations. I thought about that as we think of, of how we like evidence and proof of, of uh, things that we have to do with in life. I thought about the, uh, the egg bag example. 
years ago when the ag bags first uh, were introduced, or in the early years of it, being farm-oriented, why certainly there's an interest to myself, but, um, uh, and this was many years ago, I remember one of our brethren in the south, not from here, uh, was very much interested in finding out more about the what this is and, and uh, what some of the advantages are or whatever. So he went to uh, went to see uh, uh, a um, a farmer that was um, was heavily involved or was certainly enthused about it. And I remember just a few things he said about that about that trip. One thing was, he said, when he got there, he said there, as he was looking for this place, there was no question whether he was at the right place. I think as he drove in at the farm there, I think he said he counted 20-some ag bags, which that was a lot for something new, and said there was no question that he was at the right place. So he had the visual evidence there. And then... <clears throat> Another thing he said, he said the man was very hospitable. He was friendly. He invited him in and um, gave him literature. Showed him, gave him literature, and he, he showed them uh, what he was doing there. And then finally, the last point I remember, he said he showed them the results. Showed them how it worked. He showed them the results of what, what the ag bags could do. And... Uh, <clears throat> That's what the brother wanted, wanted to see that. And then I thought of like something more, more recently, uh, something that, that uh, I've been involved in, medical treatment versus natural methods. Now, that can get pretty tacky, candid. Probably have a topic on that. Maybe a message even. I think I could find some scriptures that would back some of those things up anyways but anyways uh, thinking about that and I have in my own personal journey we we've used and we do use medical methods medical treatment and so forth but uh, we have used a lot of natural treatments a lot of natural methods and we're currently involved in that um and, you know, I, we have two daughters that, uh, by vocation and profession, they're in the medical field. And uh, for the most part, they have suffered their dad rather kindly, my opinions and views on it, um, until sometimes when they feel like it's a little bit getting outside, a little bit far-fetched. And it's always the same thing. They'll finally say, well, Dad, where's the research? Where's the... Well, well it's a good question, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, or it's a, it's a vital question and certainly something that the medical field looks at. They want to see research. They want to see the evidence of it. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because if you, if you um, pay any interest in the medical world, the uh, FDA approval or disapproval is usually based on clinical trials. I mean, that's by and large. And uh, 
course, I paid more attention to those things, being having been involved personally even in one of those clinical trials. But it's also interesting, uh, just one, one fact about clinical trials is, did you know that only 10% of all drugs used in human clinical trials become approved? It's not, very, it's not a very big percentage, is it? So what does that have to do with the message this morning and, and uh, with the subject of prayer? Well, I think there's a point there. We have, this morning, I'd like to show us from the Scripture we have the Word of God. We ask for the research or the proof, the evidence. You know, we have all this preaching and teaching about prayer and so forth. When somebody asks, where is the evidence? Where is the proof? of? Well, first of all, we want to look at the Scripture. You know, we've got here's the research on it. Here's the research, if you please, um, on, on prayer, on, the, on, on what prayer does and the vital part it plays and, and that it is the Christian's vital breath, and so forth. It Prayer does work. We have the research here in the Word of God. So first of all, we want to look at that, at what the Word of God has to say about that. And, and, uh, and then I'd like to briefly at least consider personal testimony on it too. That uh, it's not just limited. The research on prayer is not just limited here to the Word, is it? Was it just for that era? No. I mean, we should have, every one of us as believers here would, uh, should have, do have, I trust, a personal testimony of what prayer has done. And that prayer works. That, you know, it's, it's something that's made a difference in your life and continues to make a difference in your life. And I have that confidence. So I'd like to touch on that briefly as well. For a text here, I'm going to read from James chapter 5. I'm going to turn to James chapter 5 here and just pick up a few verses here in regards to prayer. So we look at the research, if you please, and the proof, the evidence that prayer does work. James chapter 5, and we see the call to prayer, verse 13. It says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of, of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. These verses here are saturated with the uh, subject of prayer and the proof and the evidence, the call to prayer, and such like. But consider here, I'd like to consider uh, as part of the research, if you please, from the scriptures, and we're just going to be looking at just a few of them here. We don't have limited on time here. I'd like to consider here what he's saying about Elijah, 
calls him Elias here, but it was Elijah that he was referring to as we call him. Elijah in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. I'm going to turn to that and look at those look at that account. Pick some uh, uh, scripture from that account. 1 Kings 17. This account I think is familiar to us. But uh, if you're like me, I, it's always good to have a refresher. And we look at Scripture like this and they tend to become even more alive, uh, open up to us as we seek the Lord's face in those things. In chapter 17, the, ver- the first verse there, Elijah prophesied of a drought. He uh, says in verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall, be, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So he, he prophesied of a drought there. And it happened according to his prayer. We know he prayed because we just got finished reading there in James Chapter 5, it said he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Earnestly, sincerely, out of a deep conviction that it might not rain. So what was behind all this? Well, that's part of another subject, but we're not other than other than the fact that mentioning that's a fact that it was due to Israel's sins. But the point is here is Elijah prayed prayed that it wouldn't rain and um, and it happened happened earlier. it happened see so see wasn't just a casual probably one time prayer but he prayed earnestly with deep conviction that the lord would withhold the rain and uh, and god did and was to teach israel a lesson and so if we turn to Turning on then to chapter 18 of 1 Kings here. And uh, in chapter 18 and verse 5, it tells us how serious the situation really became. Because in verse 5, Ahab, which was the king of Israel at that time, said unto Obadiah, Go into the land and unto all the fountains of water and unto all the brooks, Peradventure, we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive, that we lose not all of the beasts. So I take from this verse that cattle were dying, beasts were dying. It was it was serious. Now I think when we have a couple months drought, sometimes that we've experienced already in midsummer, maybe July, August, just a couple months of not much rain, and how the grass dries up, the creeks go down, and so forth. You imagine three and a half years. I, I can't. I really can't imagine how that how that must have been. I picture cattle bawling and just yeah, it was serious. And Ahab said, "Hey, surely we can find a little water somewhere that we don't lose everything that we have here." So it was really serious, really serious. But then in the same chapter here in verse in uh, verse 41, uh, as we look at the account here in verse 41, 
Things were about to change. How, how, how did they know they were about to change? What was again through this man, Elijah, that Ahab had accused him, and he said, you're the man. You're the man that has caused problems in Israel. Remember, we can understand partially at least why Ahab said that because Elijah was the one that had told him. He said, it's not, it's not going to rain. I don't know if he told him the exact length or not. But they know it just tells us that uh, in, in his conversation with Ahab. So certainly we understand why Ahab was thinking, you know, you've got something to do with it. But anyways, in, in uh, verse 41, this, I find this interesting. Uh, after what had happened there at Mount Carmel, this was after the uh, prophets had been slain and so forth. And um, uh, then Elijah said to Ahab, he said, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Well, it was just as hot and dry when he said that. I think that it had been all along. So he tells the king, he said, get ready. He said, there's a sound of rain. And um, so Elijah, or it says Ahab went up to eat and to drink. I don't know whether it was a celebration because maybe he had faith in Elijah. I'm not sure. But I, I, I tend to think that maybe he did. And uh, so Elijah goes and he begins to pray. In verse 42 he says, He's cast himself down upon the earth, put his face between his knees. And he told his servant, he prayed for, I don't know how long he prayed, but then he told his servant, he said, you go and check. Is there any, you know, any indication? Any, do you see, you see anything? Is there any indication of, as we would probably say in a hot summer day, a thunderstorm coming up? The servant came back and said, there's, there's nothing there. He did this seven times. Seven times. I guess as I would read it, he told his servant seven times. He, you know, he'd pray. And I don't know how long those prayer sessions were. But he'd go out and the servant came back. There, there's nothing there. You, you'd think that you'd give up, wouldn't you? Give up. And, but we see the confidence, the assurance, and the perseverance in the, the intensity of Elijah's prayer. And um, Elijah knew that his God was very real and that his God would answer in some way. Finally, the last time, you know, the servant said, there's, looks like about the size of a, of a hand, just a little, little hand. Looks like there's something coming up. I don't know, like we would say in the West or wherever. And uh, that was enough for Elijah. Elijah said, he said, you go and you tell Ahab. Somewhere here, yeah. In verse 44, he said, go up and say unto Ahab, you get ready. You get going so you can beat the rain. The rain wouldn't stop thee. And I don't think it was just a little drizzle like we had the other day. And so it says, God answered that prayer and there was a great rain. And just as James says there, the proof of it. We have this, we have this recorded in the Old Testament here. Uh, in the Old Testament here, um, long before, 900 and some years probably before the uh, account was written there in James. And um, 
God heard his prayer. So there's there's proof. We want some research that prayer works. And uh, here this man here this man prayed. And uh, so we asked the question this morning. You know, people could ask the question. I don't think we do would as much, but ask the question. Well, what what kind of man was this Elijah? Uh, what was he like? What kind of a man was he? Um, like I said, I'm not. I don't think we would ask that so much because, uh, after all, we're Bible believers more than just Bible scholars. We believe the Bible, and uh, but but don't we in our minds some sometimes think that you know those men, those prophets of old, and all those miracle workers, we 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 tend in the back of our mind to think, well, you know, maybe they had a little something that we didn't have. Well, you know, there may be an element of truth there. Maybe they did have something that we don't have. Greater faith or something. But what does James say? He said, Elijah was a man just like Daniel, just like Kinley, just like Jake, or just like Reuben. That's basically what he's saying. He's a man just like them. And he prayed. He's just like us. What made the difference? The difference was in his belief and his faith in the power of prayer. And he knew what God could do. But Elijah was a man just like us. Because we know what happened uh, after the great miracle there in Mount Carmel. He went into a, he went into a valley in his life. Became discouraged. So he was a man just like us. And then we'll leave that and just go on quickly and look at a couple of New Testament accounts there. We have the account there in Acts 4. Um, what I like about that account was the, uh, as they prayed there, and that again was in the early days uh, in the, of the church, of the uh, Holy Spirit having come there, Jerusalem, and they were they were experiencing a, a great spiritual birth there, and, and things were happening that hadn't happened before, probably. But I'd just like to notice how they prayed there as they gathered together in Acts chapter four. This was after Peter and John had been called on the carpet, as we say, and and um, asked why they preached in this man's name and why they intended to bring the blood of Jesus on them and so forth. And, and then Peter and John, we see they responded there in verse 19 of Acts chapter 4. And so it says that uh, in verse 23, it says, being let go, this is referring to Peter and John, they went to their own company and they said to the other believers, they gave a report what has happened. So what did they do? They did what the people of God should do. They had a prayer meeting there. They knelt I guess they now, I don't know, that says they they um, they had a prayer meeting and they prayed. They poured out their heart to God. And um, in verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Was shaken, proof of, it was God manifesting or confirmation from God. Now, I have personally never been in a prayer meeting after we were finished praying that the place was shaken. Maybe you have. Maybe you've kept it yourself. But I think 
I could say this way, my life's been shaken. And, uh, but, you know, we, we need to pray. And if need be, let the shaking, let it, let us be shaken by those things. I really believe this was a little shaken as it says here. But I believe prayer should shake us in a way that <coughs> brings spiritual growth. And then we have the account in Acts chapter 12. We have, this is where Peter was in what I would say is if I just read the account without knowing the whole story in the picture, I, I would say, you know, yeah, it looks like the story was over for Peter. It's finished. That's going to be the end of Peter. And I expect that the church, the saints probably, they probably thought the same way. After all, um, James had been killed and uh, the Lord had not intervened in that. I say he hadn't intervened. I want to be careful how I say that. I don't know what all the details and everything were there. But anyways, he hadn't stopped James from going from this life to the next. So, you know, Herod, Herod was, uh, saw that it pleased the Jews. And so he thought, well, we'll take Peter next. And yeah, I said if I'd have been there and if I would just, if all I'd have is the arrest and what's happened here and not the rest of the story, I'd say, well, that's, it's probably the end of Peter. That's all we know. And, uh, but it says here in verse five, prayer was made without seizing of the church for Peter. Prayer was made without seizing the church and to God for him. I've often wondered what what those prayers were. Were they were they prayer? I, I picture they were probably prayers more for Peter to be steadfast and faithful, and the Lord would give him grace for the situation. I don't know. Uh, it probably was too. They probably included in those prayers that Lord, we sure could use Peter or putting him own words that you know it's your will that somehow that Peter would not be killed. I don't know. But the situation at that point looked from a human perspective looked humanly impossible. As you look at the confinement, the procedures that were being taken looked humanly impossible. So what do you do? Certainly wasn't going to do any good to go to Herod. And try to petition for him there. So they prayed. Prayed, which is what we always should do first. Pray. And bring those things before God. Well, we know that when Peter was released, the miracle happened as it did. Unbelievable, unheard of miracle. I've been in some uh, medium, maximum, I was ever in a maximum, medium security prison. And, and I've, I know what it's like to go through those doors. And they there's no one there. And you go one, the second door, the first door, and the second door, and they open and they close. And you, you realize that you're behind doors. You are. It's, it's you know, if, if, if you were there, uh, there'd be no getting out. So anyways, the church didn't believe it. I mean, it, yeah, it was unbelievable when Peter knocked. And they said, <laughs> when Rhoda came and said that, uh, wasn't it Rhoda? Yeah, that uh, said that Peter was out there and, they told her, well, you're seeing things, you're hallucinating, or you're mad, or whatever, whatever you want to put in there. But she said, no. She said, Peter is out there. And so, of course, there was great rejoicing, and we know that account. Here's again, it's proof that, that it works. You want some research on prayer? It works. It works. 
we know in all these accounts that we just read, which to us would be unthinkable as we think of the characters of these individuals, but if there wouldn't have been prayer, we wouldn't have these things recorded, would we? No reason to believe we would. They prayed and they laid those things before God. And uh, uh, also I think of Cornelius. Um, so I think of Cornelius and it says he was a man that he prayed always. I'm not sure how to look at his situation. You know, he was a Gentile soldier and... and uh, but he was a man definitely after the heart of God. And somewhere, somehow, Cornelius, um, Cornelius began to believe in prayer at some point. And he prayed. I don't know where he got his teacher or anything. That's immaterial, really. But uh, he prayed. But my point being there is, it seems to me like Cornelius must have been in a situation uh, where he felt there, there was something, there's something more out there, something I'm not getting. And I think probably a lot of us, as we, in our search for God, and as we begin to seek for God and seek earnestly for God, that we felt that we experienced, there, you know, there was something there. There's something there that we don't have. There's something as we witnessed and as we were uh, exposed to truth and those who were, people of God, we, I know it was my experience, there was something I really, there was, there's something I just didn't have. There was something there, even though we prayed and, and you know, that was the beginning. So that's kind of how I picture Cornelius, that he was a man, he prayed and he prayed, but there was something that was not quite fulfilled. There was, it just wasn't fulfilled there. And there again is, is um, you talk about research and evidence that prayer works. God answered those prayers. When a person, I believe, I believe with all my heart, when someone that's not converted, doesn't know God, when they begin to pour out their heart to God, and they do it sincerely, and they do it, they do it, and they mean business, I believe God will be found. I, I just believe that. Uh, I, I've seen, I, I know that in my own experience, and I've seen that in others. When people get real, and they mean business, with God, God will reveal himself. And we could turn to scriptures that confirm this. We have the scripture in Second Chronicles 7.14. I know God was referring to the, he was giving that promise when the people of God turn away. But if they humble themselves and they turn from their sin, that was referring to the people of God. But I believe today, people that are not converted, people that, you know, want something, they know there's something out there. And, and they begin to pray. And it doesn't have to be an eloquent prayer. It doesn't have to be a prayer with a lot of words. Probably won't be. But it can just be the publican's prayer. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Those people, God will see that they are justified if they continue in that. And so, <clears throat> God opens doors, just like he did there for Peter. Seemingly impossible. When we pray, God will open doors. We know what closed doors aren't we in our own life. I do. I, I face a, a few of them myself. Yeah. Probably will face more doors that seem to be closed. You're really not sure. Really not sure. Will this door open for me? Uh, and if it does, where does it lead to and so forth? Um, it's a part of our journey in life. Um, it's a place I believe where God desires us to be from time to time to test us and to prove us that we know, we know um, 
the power of prayer and we know how to how to uh, find answers for those things. We know who has the answers. All right, just going on quickly to, as I think more of personal testimonies and present day testimonies. Well, I, I would certainly like to hear from you brethren and sisters or whatever the Lord moves, like to hear testimonies, whether it doesn't have to be in a huge event or anything, but just something maybe that was, you know, how, how God answered that prayer for you. You know, it's it's not to bring glory to any of us or that we have possess any such power or anything, but it's 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 to show the power of God and that prayer works, that it's there's evidence that there's there's prayer works. We know it works because we've experienced it in our own life and we, we just know it works and it's a blessing to each other. I believe that the saints from uh, from uh, the beginning of time as the saints they, I believe it was something they did. They shared their journeys and they shared about how their experiences worked. You know, what, whatever the issues were. Abraham, you think Abraham was silent about his faith? No, he wasn't. We know he wasn't. And, uh, you know, certainly in the New Testament church. So, I think one incident and I've shared, shared here before and I'm not going to share it, but you remember the father that would not Stop praying for his son. He would not. He would not quit. For years and years, prayed for his son. I believe that falls under the category of remind us here of what the Lord said there in Matthew eighteen, verse one. He said, Jesus spoke to him and he said that men ought to pray always and not faint and not give up. That's what that means. You keep on praying. So what about the present? Does prayer, does it still work? Or these accounts here, the research that we have in Scripture, was that just for that, for that time, when the, the saints of that time, the first hundred or two hundred years of the early church, of the church, the New Testament church? No, we don't believe that, do we? Certainly not. It's for us. It's for, the, it's for Christians of all time. If you want to use that avenue... You avail yourself to using that avenue of prayer. The story is told of a congregation that uh, seemingly had a lot of spiritual success, flourishing church and so forth, and things went well. We like those times, don't we? I do. When things are well, it just seems like everyone's in fire for the Lord and so forth. But time went by and things seemed to change, and the fire, the... The glory seemed to just wasn't quite there. Later on, it was revealed that an elderly lady that had passed to her reward had spent hours, hours of her time praying for the church when she was still alive. Does prayer work? Indeed, it does. Desperately, brothers and sisters, we need prayer. We need we need to be a praying people. The Bible is just simply full of that. Now. certainly is, just as James said, the power of an effectual fervent prayer has not diminished. It's not diminished. It's still just as real the day as it was in Elijah's day. We don't have to be asking the question like there was an article once written, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He's just where he always has been. So where are the people 
that have the faith and the prayer and the confidence that Elijah had? That needs to be the question. Where are the people that will seek God like Elijah of old? Not where is the God of Elijah. He's where he's always been. Okay, just a few more things here. Thinking in the practical sense, you know, most of the time when we pray, we want something to change, don't we? Isn't that, aren't our prayers a lot of times that way? I know, I, often I do. We, we want something to change. Now that's just, you know, that's not all our prayers are, I'm sure, but, but a lot of times when we pray, we, we pray because we want, we want something to change. Does it change? Does it change? What's, what's your experience been when you pray for, Something to change? Does it change? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it changes quickly. Other times it it takes a while. It doesn't change right away. Sometimes it doesn't change at all. Or does it? Not that we can see, at least. We don't see the we don't see it change. We like to see, for example, if it's an intercessory prayer for an individual, we want them to turn their life around or whatever. Or it can be a difficult situation. It, it can be many things. We pray for change. We want this situation to change, but it doesn't really change. Or does it? I asked again. Or does it? Well, I think, let, let me suggest this. I think if nothing else changes our attitude or our outlook, uh, our disposition or whatever toward it, toward the situation should change. If we're really, if we're really, um, God seeking people and our life, our life is, is after the heart of God, our attitude, the way we look at the situation should change. So that's why I say nothing changes or does it. And I'll give you an example of that just quickly. I don't know maybe if you ever thought of it in this way or not. But Paul there, and I'm not going to turn to it, but we know the account there that Paul, Paul uh, um, gives us there in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. And that's where Paul speaks about his thorn in the flesh, as we call it. He says, three times, three times I pleaded with God to take this away from me. It didn't change, did it? Did it? I don't think so. Not if I read that account correctly. It didn't change. Three times he pleaded with God. But you know what changed? Paul's attitude about it. Is that is a better word? Paul's, Paul's, uh, yeah, Paul. The circumstances, the 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 um, thorn in the flesh was still there. Obviously, Paul said. But Paul's outlook about it changed. His outlook changed about it. We know that. Because Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore. God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, I will glory in my infirmities. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. You know, it's interesting. I find it interesting because... How often do we, and I'm probably as guilty as anyone, have you tried to figure out and had a lot of discussion with what Paul's thorn in the flesh was? We're just that way. We talk about it and we talk about it. And we really miss the point of what that is. What is the point there? You think about that. What is the point? And it's, it's an interesting to this, you know. But obviously Paul, 
didn't feel it was any of our business or we didn't need to know because he doesn't disclose what that, what that, uh, inf- what that infirmity was. The point of it is there that God's grace is sufficient. That's the point. That's the main point that he brings out in that lesson is to teach us that number one is our attitude changes when we see that. And the, and the, and the main point of that lesson is that God's grace is sufficient. That's what he's teaching us. When you have that thorn in the flesh, when you have something that you plead for, you you know, with God for whatever, if you six times, a hundred times or whatever, I'm talking about, you know, things that fit under that category, whatever, whatever that thorn in the flesh was. But, you know, God's grace is sufficient. And that's what Paul was simply saying. That's what the point is in that, in sharing that, I believe, is Paul was saying when you have those times, God's grace is sufficient. So we, our attitude changes about it. We realize that, yeah, whether it's a physical infirmity or whatever, we realize that God will give us the grace. And that's what God said to Paul. He said, I'll give you the grace. My grace is sufficient for whatever you're pleading about. And so that goes for every one of us today. Remember that. It doesn't mean you should stop praying. I'm not telling you the Holy Spirit needs to speak to you in regards to how long you pray about something if it doesn't change or whatever. But the point is here, again, is I want to emphasize is God's grace is sufficient. Doesn't matter what the doesn't matter what the uh, thorn in the flesh is. His grace is sufficient. He will not bring anything into our life that he will not also supply the grace for us. That's the long and short of it. That's what. That's the point in that lesson. Or as I understand it, if you see different way, you'll have the opportunity to do that, to share that. And why, finally, one other scripture here that I'm going to use, and certainly not the least. And this has to do with our Lord when he walked here in the earth. And you look at this scripture here in Hebrews chapter 5. This is, again, kind of got sidetracked going back into the Word, and I don't necessarily apologize for that. But I certainly would like to, to hear and know, hear some of the testimonies of what you've experienced in your journey. But in Hebrews chapter 5, there's an interesting scripture here. As I think of praying and does it change things? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you pray a long time. It seems like you don't get an answer, but then you do. But the point is never forget, prayer does work. Prayer does work. If nothing else, like Paul, it brought a rest. And it brought a, his prayer was answered when he prayed about that thing. It brought a rest. When God answered, he realized that, this is what my journey. This is part of my journey. And he could rest in that. He thought about it. God spoke to him, whether it was, you know, orally or, or through the Spirit, that my grace is free. Anyways, we'll quickly look at this. In Hebrews chapter 5, and this is in verse 7, it's speaking about the Lord. And he's saying here, who in the days of his flesh, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus, when he was here and lived in his flesh and blood body, When he had offered up prayers, and I take this was in Gethsemane, when he prayed, 
when he prayed till, it says, his sweat as drops of blood. And supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Remember how our Lord himself, as the Son of God, how he pleaded out there in Gethsemane. How many times he pleaded there, he said, he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. I think that's what it's referring to there. God heard him. It says there, and he was heard in that he feared. That's the son of God. God heard him, but it was still Calvary, wasn't it? Isn't that something? It was still Calvary. Did his prayer change anything? I believe it did. When you look at that account, there comes a time when Jesus woke his disciples up and he said he's ready to go. Behold, he that betrayeth the Son of Man is at hand. Did it make a difference? I believe it did. Even to the Son of God. He prayed and he realized that Calvary was the road that he was going to walk. And he accepted that. And he realized that his father was going to see him through that. It's a beautiful lesson for us. I can't think of a better, better lesson for us in that thing himself. And then it goes on that verse. The next verse says, Though he were a son, even though he was the son of God and called out to the father, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You see, those things teach us something. It makes us better Christians, doesn't it? We have all the research this morning to prove that prayer works. It's the answer for our issues in life. How those answers come through that prayer remains to be seen in my experience and your experience. But it works. We have got all the research. We have got all the evidence, all the proof that we need, first of all, in the word of God. And then I trust in our own personal experience. Let's pray.